you are hearing this, you are receiving a signal from another planet. Fanboy planet. Watch animate chicks with inflatable breasts. You might be a Trekkie. Sit back and watch as the Uber geek goes and kicks it up a notch. Turn to the letter F in your dictionary and add this word to your vocabulary. Take a look, cause I'm the real McCoy. Damn it, Jim, I'm not a doctor. I'm just the definition of a fanboy, baby. I listened to most of the episode, uh, or most of the of the conversation. Oh, five thirty one. We're doing the frame for five thirty one. Yeah. Okay. So, gotcha. So I listened to most of the conversation. It sounded pretty good. I had as we went into his office and closed the door. He fed me mulberries. What's a mulberry? See, nobody knows. Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I do. I do. I, there's okay. Like, it's like in a kid's rhyme, isn't there? Round and round the mulberry, mulberry bush, bush yeah. the monkey chased the, the weasel. weasel. They Mon- ate the mulberries no, and died. No, the, the monkey thought was all in fun. Pop, Pop goes, goes the weasel. weasel. So I'm 53. Until last weekend, I had no idea that there actually was a mulberry. Well, I figured there was, right? But I had no idea that it was edible. Okay. So because the weasel went pop, you know. So, well, exactly. Yeah. And so I sang that song to Stephanie, and I said, "I just thought we were killing weasels," and then she was bothered <laughs> for a while. Thing she goes, what do you mean the weasel dies? I said, pop goes the weasel. What did you think? She goes, I just thought the weasel went pop. <laughs> I said, yeah, it exploded. Um, it's it's like a it, it tastes a little sweeter than a date. Okay, but it looks like a dried berry. It's like a brown berry, like a, oh, like, a brown berry. Brown berry. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, it's hard to describe. The best, honestly, the best thing I can say is it looked like a marijuana bud. Okay. You know, uh, or like a conifer, I so guess. So what's that look like? Uh, it's like a little conifer, like yeah. a little, uh, a tiny, 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 tiny uh, artichoke, maybe. Okay. Um, I got it. But without the spikes. And so this is, you know, I don't even know that I, I would want this on a recording, but it's like we talked. We talked for like, and it ends up, it's 55 minutes. And I'm glad. We rarely, I you know. Interviews don't go that long, but it was such a, 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 a it's, you know, the last time we had Josh on the podcast. Yeah. He's got so many stories. And- you can't talk to Josh without it getting dark and deep, or more, mostly deep, you know? I mean, that because we we interviewed him about the, the Unknown Soldier way right, back when, right. and it was like, and I, I described that for years as... We talked about his trip. The uh, as, as the most important interview we had ever done, uh-huh. because we talked about real things, and so right. we did again. And... Then I he said he had poured me a glass of water and I left it out in his kitchen. So I said, "Oh, right, let me let me get the water." I'm gonna go out there and then he he just goes into his fridge and he hands he goes, "It's a basket of strawberries. Would you like one?" Yeah, yeah sure, I'll have a strawberry. It's nice. And then suddenly there's a carrot in my hand. And then he just gets me a plate, brings out dip, and then he starts pouring. He goes, "You allergic to pecans?" I said, "No." And he goes, "Okay, here." And he goes, "He goes, I eat like a squirrel." And then he starts putting things on. And then I'm eating these mulberries. Going, I don't know what this is. And he goes, and he says, "Do you like the mulberries? They're expensive as shit, but they're great." And I was like, "Some mulberry." And and every single person, adult in particular, I I don't think I've right. seen any. I've seen my kid. It was, it was just like. 
I had a mulberry. And everybody does exactly what you did and like, said, what's a mulberry? Yeah. And then maybe they make the connection to that right, song. Right, right, and I'm right. like, I'm going to have to go to like Whole Foods and check it out because they were really good. Okay. You know, it was just, yeah, I, I never liked figs before. I just started eating those recently. Yeah, yeah. I like dried. I, I, let me, let me, my snacking isn't dried fruit a lot. Let me, let me give you uh, the piece of advice that my grandmother gave to me. She had a fig tree. Okay. And a very, very wise words passed down to her by her grandfather. Uh, maybe it's just her father. So my great-grandfather. Uh, never. Yes, it was never. Never dance naked under the fig tree during a full moon at midnight. Okay. And that's that's the that's the that's wisdom. it. That's the. <laughs> I have I have several full blood Portuguese friends that I have said. My grandmother gave me this piece of advice as if this were an ancient Portuguese wisdom, wisdom and none of them knew it either. <laughs> she just had a bad experience dancing naked under I, the moonlight. Yeah, as I I was telling that story over Christmas, and I said things that, get everywhere. I said, I said you know. We didn't know that side of grandma, but there are a couple of photos where you went, she was kind of a hottie in the 20s. Uh-huh. I could see where maybe my her father did have to say really weird stuff to calm her down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're know? you out dancing naked last night. But that's not the woman I knew. Yeah. I knew the 60-something, you know, sure. she was Baker. just kind and she watched Ultraman with me when I was four. That's nice. Yeah, it was. Anyway, yes, we had a great, uh, it was just funny because Josh put up on Facebook last week like, hey, I can talk about my book now. It's out. Good Night Paradise. So anybody wants, anybody has a podcast or a site and Anna tagged me. And so I just said, well. It's a great lead into the episode. Yeah. And I just said, I'm, 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 uh, I'm in town. Do you, you know, do you have time this week? Maybe one night this week we can get coffee. I just wanted to see him. Yeah. And he said, uh, he, he said, "Here's my. Uh, I'm at. Such, I'm available Saturday. You want to. You want to just come over?" And I'm like, "What? <laughs> you know?" And then, uh, no. I mean, it, it, it was really cool, you know. And 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 as it turned out, Stephanie, one of Stephanie's friends, wanted to go see Into the Spider Verse again. Uh-huh. I say again because Stephanie and I went Friday night, and then so Saturday I just said like, I, "I'm going to go." And she says, "Oh, you that know, was your second viewing, or that was my second viewing." Okay, I took her for the first time Friday night, and then her her but she went for her second. Her, time. One of her college roommates texted her Saturday yeah. morning and said, "Hey, have you seen Into the Spider Verse?" And she loved it so much she wanted to go. Did you see it in three D? No. Okay. I'm um, highly recommend 3D. Yeah. I, no, I I know, but yeah. I don't think it's going to happen. You know. So anyway, so went over to Josh's and I thought, you know, we'll just do a 15 minute and I'll, I'll be fine and it'll take me time to get out there into LA. And we just had a great time sitting around talking and you know, as this interview will go and I'll I'll swing back around to to set it up it is um, there are a lot of things that we alluded to that we ended up talking off air. And I, it was just a delight. Yeah. You know, it was just fun to, to hang out and to snack a bit. And then we started talking and recommending books to each other. And, um, you know, he, he had not, I, I, I don't mean to call him out, but he had not read or heard of my favorite thing is monsters. Oh. So I felt like I did my job. Yes. He should read that. And, I, and uh, so, yeah. Anyway. Uh, 
Yeah, so I'll repeat all that uh, and, and leave out anything I want to use that stuff, but it'll cut out the embarrassing stuff. And- uh, okay. You know, I don't know what is. And uh, it, it is just uh, it is just nice. So, hey, this is uh, Derek McCaw. I, I guess that's why I don't think it's a good roll-up is because we've got to do the intro, too. And then it's like a weird We always do. Division. Do we? All right. Yeah. Are you going to leave this in? You sure bet I will. Do this now? <laughs> really? Maybe not. That's awkward. I mean, you no. know, I, no. I don't know. Um, but this is Derek McCaw, Editor-in-Chief of FanboyPlanet.com, and welcome to episode do you five. Want to take a breath before they do that, and I can possibly cut the stuff out if you think it's that embarrassing? <laughs> it's like <laughs> when you say, can you cut that out because I'm really, really, and now you're Derek McCaw, I have no place to cut. <laughs> well, because what's happening is you're shaking your head with that big, goofy look going, yeah, I totally wanted to leave this in, and it's like, I know that I'm helpless no, right now. No, it's charming. I just went, my entire fate is in your hands. Oh. Okay, no. Um, anyway, it's fine. Should we do it again? This is Derek. <laughs> I know. And then Josh is listening going, when do I when come do I in? Talk? <laughs> it's, uh, he's not in the room with us. This is Derek McCaw, editor-in-chief of FanboyPlanet.com. Welcome to episode 531. I don't know what Rick's going to call it, <laughs> but uh, I, I I referred to it on Facebook as Josh Dysart fed me a mulberry. And anyway, uh, this is a mulberry course, dreams. Mulberry, oh, I like that mulberry dreams. Nah, no, no, no. Because I actually don't want to make that's light the of album. It. I yeah, I I, I don't want to make light of, of what it was a, a great great conversation about a fairly serious subject that we got we get light in places because you have to. Anyway, uh, we are here. This is kind of a special bonus episode, uh, magnificently produced, of course, in an undisclosed location that we refer to as the Brett Cave. Bye. Rick Brett Snyder. There we go. And anyway, uh, before we get into the series of, of the very special episode, no, that makes it sound even worse. <laughs> With Blossom. But a, but a little different than we usually do. Uh, it seems we've been together for a million years. Okay, sorry. That was the... That's that's my special episode is always an episode of Family Ties. What was in that coffee I gave you? I don't know. I, uh, you haven't had You eBay. had like three sips of it. Too. I know, I know. Anyway... Uh, before we get deep into it, of course, want to say that you can listen to the Fanboy Planet podcast on, on Apple Podcasts, on Google Play. And if you can't, by the way, listen to it on Google Play, let us know. Uh, of course, if you're trying to listen to this on Google Play, you probably haven't and you're not even hearing me say this now. And tune in. Yeah. Okay. If you're, if you're in a Tesla, you can listen to us on TuneIn. TuneIn.com, right? I mean, yeah. that's the website as oh, it's well. Just a, it's under streaming in your Tesla menu. Uh, and it is on Alexa, too. Amazon Echo Excellent. plays us on TuneIn. So, hey. Yeah, that's if you go home and you say, Alexa, play Fanboy Planet. Yeah. And it will play the latest episode. That is so amazing. Yeah. Ah. Uh, I don't want to listen to me. Oh, no, I, but I want you to listen to me. Anyway, of course, uh, at your, whatever your podcast you're And of course, to, you know, if we're not on your, your favorite provider, do let us know and also write into them and say you'd like the Fanboy Planet podcast. But of course, each and every podcast has a page on fanboyplanet.com. We love you going there because, of course, if you would like to, if something we talk about on the podcast tonight, I know I was modulating so well. And then I hit the microphone and everything has gone higgledy piggledy, <laughs> right? That's what you're thinking. Nobody can see the fa- my facial expressions. <laughs> I know, but I see it. And it's just like, oh, I see my mother. Anyway, uh, the disapproving look. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, of course, if we talk about something on the podcast that uh, you can't find at your local brick and mortar store, 
uh, because I, I I am all about the communities of local brick and mortar stores, of course. But uh, you can find it on Amazon. If we're your community, then by all means go to Amazon.com or actually through the search box that is on each and every page at Fanboy Planet. This episode in particular, and I I did not check. Uh, I assume take TKO Studios. Uh, maybe is available through Amazon, but I, I forgot to look before we. I came down here tonight I to, don't do, the, know. I didn't to do the podcast. Uh, regardless, you could go to TKO Presents and order there, and I, I don't mind missing it because I really think you should just read their books. I don't care whether it's whether we get a little tiny uh, remuneration or not, but I know a lot of local shops, comic book shops, are selling them, and I, I do think you should go down there and ask them as well if you can afford to wait. It is on Amazon. Okay, then we will have a direct link. Send Deadly Sin, Sarah, good night. We will have a direct link because tonight is uh, really another two two episodes in a row focusing on. Looks like it's just the graphic novels, so you can't get the individual episodes. Well, and that's okay. Yeah. And, you know, that's okay for those. I assume people do want to do it that way through uh, when they go to Amazon is to get trades like myself. Anyway, you can also find, uh, you know, their gifts on ThinkGeek. We are an affiliate with ThinkGeek. And, of course, if you'd just like to help uh, support the cost of uh, of of the podcast and the, and the site itself, which occasionally runs some pretty interesting stuff, you can uh, go to PayPal and donate at editor at fanboyplanet.com. And of course, it is through that ad- address, editor at fanboyplanet.com, that you can reach out to us and communicate with us. And I would really look forward to that because, as I said, tonight is a different kind of episode than we usually run. And so I really want to know if... The oppor- the opportunity to do what I did this weekend with a creator, which sounds weird when I say uh, put it that way, but that's all right. That that uh, it doesn't come up very often, but I kind I kind of dug that I got this opportunity and that the conversation went the way went as it did. So uh, I'd like to know what people think. So write into editor at fanboyplanet dot com. I posted a photo uh, from his office uh, on Facebook. So Facebook slash at fanboy.planet. And you can also follow us on Twitter at fanboyplanet. Tweet us at fanboyplanet. Instagram, fanboyplanet. You sense the pattern. Yeah. And of course, on this page, if you're listening to this through the the, the website, we do have commentary. We uh, What is the name of that? I, I'm blanking on the, the software that we use for comments. But, you know, you could just comment through that. It's one that's... that validates oh, across yeah. a lot of different sites um but anyway yeah by all means just just drop a comment i really want to know what people think and I, and i do think that because of the conversation that's about to happen there should be a conversation among all of you as well and listening and and i i would love to be included in that conversation and just you know here so um Anyway, I should mention. I mean, this is not the first time we've had a conversation with Josh. No, uh, so I would say this. Awesome let's let's think back to this. Was two thousand nine? Yeah. I think it was two thousand nine because, or two thousand eight. Josh and I were talking about this. It comes up in the interview. So tonight's episode, you've probably seen the title already, is an interview with Joshua Dysart, uh, Josh, and uh, it is because on the last podcast that we released. I put Rick on the spot and stupidly put myself on the spot too, which was what's the best book of 2018, the best comic book, the best Mm, graphic novel. And no offense, I have completely blanked on what you said because I remember that I went, uh, the immortal Hulk because you asked me and I hadn't even prepared. Yeah. And then two days later, and I say this in the interview as well. And two days later, I finally unwrapped my copy of Goodnight Paradise by Josh Dysart. 
and Alberto Ponticelli uh, from TKO Studios. A murder mystery mystery set in the homeless community of Venice Beach. And it is not an exaggeration. I told Josh to his face. I couldn't read another comic for two days. Hmm. Because I didn't want to lose the feeling. I didn't want to lose the impact of what he had told me. So, yes, about 10 years ago when Josh was writing The Unknown Soldier for Vertigo, and I had, I've interviewed him a couple of times because I brought up that history with him as well. And we interviewed him about The Unknown Soldier and how the depths of research that he had gone to for research and, and really the issues going on in Ghana and Uganda and these war-torn countries at the time, which many probably, you know, really still. still. Yeah. And... For years, I described that as, I didn't say it was the best interview we'd ever done because I think we, I was still kind of like, uh, uh, but it was was, a little interrupt driven too, just by the environment. But right. Because it was at elusive comics, no offense to elusive, you know, it was great. It was was like free comic book day or something. Yeah. And, um, I described it for years as the most important interview we'd ever done Mm -hmm. because, not that I think that what I hope that what we're doing is fun and informative and people enjoy listening, but sometimes when a guest has something that actually matters in the real world, as I say, people who are using their powers for good, and that's who Josh is when he when he writes detail that you don't necessarily get other any other right. place. So I think I'm I'm gilding the lily a bit here, or putting a hat on a hat really, as far as I talk about this with Josh. So last week, Josh. Uh, put a call out on Facebook and said, hey, now that TKO has launched, I can talk about this book that I did. Who's got a podcast? Anna Warren Sebrian. Thank you, Anna, from Elusive Comics and Games, one of the sponsors of Fanboy Planet and where we started the podcast. Tagged me in case I hadn't seen it. And because, you know, with Facebook algorithms, who knows? And so I said, hey, yeah, I messaged Josh and said, I'm in town. We can put you on the podcast if you don't have time this week, but but uh, but Rick is out. You were on vacation, and so I said I knew we weren't going to record on Wednesday night. So I said, you know, if we can meet up and I can record, that'd be great. Well, he invited me over to his apartment or condo. I don't know. I would describe, but anyway, at an undisclosed location somewhere in the greater Los Angeles area, and that was a very gracious invitation. Anybody welcoming us into their home? What a risk! Yeah, uh, <laughs> but. We're, we, we're safe, really. We are. No, no you know, it, yeah. it's. It, I, I home did, is a private place, especially no, for somebody in the and, entertainment. And no, absolutely, and and it, he invited me over, and and we chatted, and it was. Uh, it ended up being a much longer conversation than I thought it would be, and that's why this is an extra episode or a, a separate episode devoted to it, because we ended up recording a conversation for fifty-five minutes and talking for another two hours about film criticism story. What's going on? That wasn't lives. recorded. That wasn't recorded. Right. right. You know, so 55 minutes recording and I was still there. Like I said, I said, oh, you know, honey, I'll be, I'll be gone for like an hour and a half or so, yeah. maybe two with traffic. And I was back, you know, like four hours later. And, um, I, I, I just want to call, call out and make him blush ahead of time. If he, if he's listening, that the the things that energize me about because Rick and I were just talking about Comic Con uh, whether or not we go we don't know yet because of the way that that goes but the thing that energizes me about doing this podcast is the conversations and what I say at at least our acquaintanceships acquaintanceships and perhaps friendships and I've and and that it amazes me that we know 
the people that we admire and have mm-hmm. friendly relationships with the people that we that we admire. And Josh is one of those people, one somebody I consider a friend. But even if I didn't know, hadn't met him for a long time, it was I was enjoying his work. Certainly. And the fact that I met him and then realized, holy crap, he's writing about important things just just made the admiration and the esteem go up. So all that is to just say I sincerely say thank you ahead of time before you as listeners listen, but thank you to Josh Dysart for the conversation because this is the, the weird praise. Uh we haven't even Rick hasn't produced this and I still listen to the raw audio back of this conversation and I never do that. I just usually give it to Rick and say make uh, it pretty. <laughs> make it pretty. And just I just hate when you say that. But uh I've learned this the hard way. Uh, but um but I had to listen back this afternoon and while I while I was working just to hear the conversation in the background because I thought was you know, I, I wanted to remember the things that he was talking about. And it is because Goodnight Parody, Paradise, this murder mystery, is so much more than that. And he also has a book coming, let's not sell that short, uh, from Valiant, The Life and Death of Toyo Harada. And he'll talk about that as well. And I'm sure there's more because I saw research material all over his office that I went, we won't talk about that because you don't know what that project is yet. You know, so, and I won't tell you what the research material is. But it it was it's cool and great fascination. So there was so much ado. So without further ado, Josh Dyson. Hey, I am sitting in, what do you call this? We refer to the podcast uh, place as the Brett Cave. Is this the nice. Dysart? I don't really, uh, what it's do you, just what the do you call office. It? The like, office. Because I don't have a professional bone in my body. So if I call this the office, there's this probably misguided belief that eventually I'll act professional in this space. Okay. Well, then <laughs> we can and produce and something. Yet, and yet you are wearing a three-piece suit. And yes, exactly. And it is perfect. Uh, yeah, this, my, is, yeah. this is talking about Josh Dysart. Uh, professionally, you see on, on books, actually Joshua. Uh, but I, uh, yes, uh, anyway. Um, so uh, I, we are here to talk about Goodnight Paradise. On the last podcast, at least as, as of this recording, uh, we had an interview with Z Chun, who is the founder of, uh, co-founder of TKO Studios, and they have put out Goodnight Paradise as one of the four, uh, first books. So, um, as I, I mentioned, we're going to be a little out of the normal, uh, rhythm of an interview because I think there is no way to talk about Goodnight Paradise without talking about some serious issues. Mm. And then it gets shallow when we do interviews, yeah. you know, because this is promotion too. So, yes. and we uh, don't want to chase people off. Right. We don't want to, like, you know. I, know. I think we just did. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> this exactly. is going to get heavy. Listen for five more minutes. It's light and don't happy. Don't go away. <laughs> don't leave us. Uh, so, Z, mention, you know, on the interview that yours was the, the book that was developed before TK's oh, Studios entered the picture. So, what was your pitch? Well, um, I guess what he means is that I had... Um, I promise I'll answer your question. But uh, <laughs> but when, when Pornsack Pichetschot, uh one of my dearest friends in comics, when he was my editor on Unknown Soldier, we started talking about this, what, this book that would eventually become Goodnight Paradise. And um, it goes that far back. Yeah, it goes that far. It's like ten years. I've been I've been carrying this. Has load. it been ten years since Unknown Soldier? 
It's been 10 years since we started Unknown Soldier, absolutely, okay. Okay. yeah. So Unknown Soldier wrapped in 2010, but, you know, I started, I mean, I did the research trip to uh, East Africa in 2007, so it's been, yeah, 11 years since we first started to really take it seriously. Yeah. But the point being is that we've been talking about this book for at least, you know, or about a decade, and um, so it was Z's relationship to... Pornsack, their friends, uh, I believe through like the television production stuff, because Pornsack ended up being um, working for DC Entertainment out here. And um, and so really it's Pornsack that pitched him the book that would become Goodnight Paradise, which was in its early development stage just called Eddie. It was like its working title. So I didn't have to pitch it, basically. Um, so I have no idea what Pornsack told Z. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> that's the answer to your question. Okay. But Z and I had a lunch uh, in Venice Beach, where I was living at that time. And, um, y- you know, and, and his enthusiasm was great. I had shopped it around and met with all kinds of... Everything from nobody wants to read a book about, you know... Uh, poor people or houseless people to can he be a superhero a homeless superhero to can he be an ex-cop Z was sort of the first one other than Karen Berger which had always shown interest but all but been sort of you know she was professionally in transition there for a while right 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 so other than Karen Z was the only person who like leaned into what I what it was to me and so uh, it, it very quickly became obvious that this was the only only way to go all right, so you know that was actually my next question was why TKA Studios, but I think you just did is that they were they were there, and everything you just said about like what people wanted to develop it into, I totally see. It's yeah. it's it's interesting, and I, I will get back to this idea. Um, well, can I dig in just to touch more on why TKO Studios? Yes, please do. For, uh, um, so, you know, I, obviously I mentioned there had been a lot of head slapping and pitching this to other people. And I, I think, un- unfortunately, publishers have a pretty narrow view of what comics can and should be uh, in our industry. At least the publishers that I have access to and that I deal with. But another thing about TKL was um, it's very interesting. You know, one thing I learned about helping uh, everyone start Valiant was that... Starting a new publisher has an energy and an excitement, both, uh, both sort of uh, commercially. Like you're both you you all drop at the same time. I I knew from the early on that I was going to be dropping with a Garth Ennis book, which was personally exciting for me. Yeah. Um, because uh, he's an influence, and um, but at this, you know, I knew we'd be getting the marketing push of joining TKO, of being part of that first wave of books that I couldn't get if I was just another book and a publisher. Um, but apart from that, I really enjoy being part of the beginning um, and influencing the culture of a brand new company. And, you know, we did that with Valiant. I, a lot of my personal rhetoric, I found, made its way to to the, the whole the rhetoric of the company, the culture of the company. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and to a lesser degree, that's also been the case here at TKO. And I like doing that because I feel like now I feel like I'm actually engaged with the industry in a way like we're throwing TKO is throwing a bomb into the industry. You know, they're being like new distribution points, new, you know, a new attack on the materials. Um, so 
all that was super exciting for me. But there's a little bit of a fear because this is such a personal story, maybe the most personal story that I've told, um, that uh, there's a fear that if it doesn't work, then you're throwing your book into obscurity, right? And that, and that mm-hmm. five years from now, no one will be able to read it. Ten years from now, no one will be able to read it. And uh, um, so it's a bit of a gamble. But that, that's ultimately why I chose Z and TKO, was Z's attitude to the project, the excitement of a new company, and the idea that we could somehow maybe influence the industry that I love so much and that, you know. Yeah. Okay. I, that was a good elaboration on that, on Thank that you. answer. I'm getting better at my talking. <laughs> I, yes. Uh, so let us get one last promotional talking point <laughs> out of the way, which is I know that you've got uh, a valiant book still coming. It's on the horizon very, very shortly. The life and, and death, death of, of Toyo, Toyo Harada. Yes. And because uh, you had one of the things you had started with was Harbinger. So yes. I just wanted to talk about what's next before we really dive into yes. Midnight Paradise. Yes. So Life and Death of Toyo Harada comes out in March. If you have been following my Valiant work, this is the end of my Sayat cycle. Okay. Um, I know you're never supposed to say never again and I'll end up like Sean Connery in some you know half-baked James Bond movie 20 years later. But... Um, Start fitting for the toupee now? Yes, exactly, exactly. But as far as I can tell, this is my last attack on this particular corner of the Valiant Universe and my last hurrah with Toyo Harada. And um, it's something that I pitched to Warren and Dinesh, I don't even know, let's say four, five years ago. Uh, It's something that I began writing, let's say... Three years ago, it's something that went through so many editors, so many upheavals at the company, um, new management, new ownership, new directions, new editorial, and uh, now uh, multiple editorial shifts and cycles at at the head editorial, not just my personal editor, which also shifted drastically um, throughout the project. And I have protected it and shepherded it uh, with the help of Dinesh, um, particularly through the transition, Dinesh and Warren, and um, and now with the help of my current editor, Carl Ballers, I believe is how you pronounce his last name, who's wonderful, and um, and it's finally coming out, man. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> it's a long go. time coming. Well, and, and that was a big impact, right? because Harbinger, you, you launched that, and then that's one of the, that will be one of the linchpins. I think they went with Bloodshot. First, but Sony's getting that cinematic mm-hmm. yeah. universe, and you were a big uh, part of that of what of where they're go- they're going to go with that. Yeah, I appreciate. I, I look, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We'll see. Yeah, once you start spending a hundred, you know, or eighty million, ninety million dollars on a thing, uh, the direction gets muddy real fast. But uh, I hope all these things you say are true. Um, yeah, we'll I, yeah, I do too. Yeah. Um, so you know, so let's get. I will. Oh, oh wait, one more thing about life and death. Then, if we're going to go, yeah, yeah, that. yeah. Because I was saying, like, if you've been following my work at Valiant, but I do think that even though this is this is the ending of Imperium, this is the ending of the Syat cycle, this is the ending of a character that I've been working on for years and years. If you're a brand new reader, uh, I think there's there. It's going to be a very exciting read for for new readers because, you know, when we were kids, we never, like, picked up, made sure we got, like, number one of a story arc. That's not how we bought comics. We just bought whatever looked awesome. And, uh, yeah. 
you know, and then you opened it, and it was just crazy. They're, like, thrown in the middle of the story, and you're like, this comic has, you know, this comic is, takes place in an underground base. This comic has a robot. This is amazing. And um, that sort of maximalism that that we got uh, in the late 70s and, and throughout the 80s in comics, particularly, like, sci-fi or superhero comics, that's the kind of maximalism that... I want to do with Toy Harada. So I think that if you're a new reader, there's something crazy vibrant about You can just it. latch on and just yeah. hold on and enjoy the ride. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I tend to find, I often really like seeing things that are in the that are in the middle of the story that I have no context on. Like, to me, that's often, they're so much better without context. Backstory ruins everything. <laughs> no, I, you know, you that's know? another conversation you and I could have. Yeah. That's just... Let, let's let's collaborate on an article or something because yeah, I, I really it. feel that way. Yeah. Well, you know, because before we started, we were talking about like Buckaroo Banzai. There is a movie that absolutely did not connect. No backstory. Well, unless you read the novel, uh, uh, the novelization, which nice. I did because I nice. got obsessed. But even that is it's a novelization that really is just making footnotes to backstory that doesn't exist. Like yeah. as you would have seen in the adventure, I can't remember what titles they oh, gave. I love but, like it. that's yeah, great. Oh, it's a brilliant book. Uh, so you know that's exactly right. You know that. We did used to just latch on. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know just... I just showed somebody, a friend of mine who didn't quite have the same pop culture access that I had, and he's a few years younger than me. I've been sort of like throwing shit at him. Like, we just went to see The Godfather on the big screen. We just went to see Akira on the big screen. And I threw Bokuru Banzai at him one night while we were here hanging out. And, uh, and, you know, it was really fascinating because we all saw that when we were so young. And so we just took for granted that a neurosurgeon rock star... You know, adventurer yes. was doing these things, but I watched it with my friend through the eyes of a thirty-seven-year-old, and he was like, "This is fucking crazy." <laughs> but it is. It but, is. Yeah. But for me, it was just eighties Doc Savage. I know exactly, exactly, you know, <laughs> exactly. So, so it's shifted, and I, I, I kind of love that idea. So I hope that new readers will open the book and be like, "What is going on? This is absolutely this nuts. is twenty nineteen Doc Savage Toyo Harada." I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not sure I can deliver on that promise, but, <laughs> it, you know. But maybe that could be the next next. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is, this is I'm going to tell you, with, with Valiant, and even from the, you know, I, I was driving over here thinking, what was the first thing when you and I first met? And it was probably like 2003, 2004. I know it was a Comic-Con, but yeah. I can't remember if it was through Violent Messiahs or uh, Captain Gravity and the Power of the Vroom. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. Uh, both of which I have the trade paperbacks on my on my shelf still, and go, yeah, this is cool. Nice. But you know what I've said on the podcast many times, and I, I, I as I joked a couple weeks ago, I even said to you, sober at a CBLDF party, <laughs> it is you know you use uh, why I think that you are when we write the history of 21st century comics. Shit, I know, I know. It's so <laughs> it's so no, bombastic. No, let's do it. Let's say. But it. I'm going to say so. It is <laughs> that. The, the people are going to look at your work and say, "This is some really important stuff." And you were always using, as I like to, as I like to reduce it to, you're using your powers for good. You're not just writing. You're always there's a passion. I, I hate to bring in a Star Is Born, but you know, there's that, that line that uh, what's his name, Bradley Cooper says, is like, "It's not, it's not enough to have a voice." Uh-huh. It's having something to say. And you... Oh my God, I can't believe it. I just accidentally... I love it. Pimp for A Star is Born. It was a good movie. Uh, but, you know, it is... I'm like you, a Bradley Cooper. You are... A, there's a, there's, you are like Bradley Cooper. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but which Bradley Cooper? That's the question. Yeah. Anyway, you know, oh, okay. you've used it to talk about re- you used your work to talk about real world injustices and concerns. Valiant, obviously, with Harbinger. When I read the the first arc of that and thought, yeah, this is X Men. If the actual issues that are facing us with corporatism, capitalism, all this stuff is is you know, this is what it would really be like. Mm-hmm. And as you can say, this is what it would really, really be like when you're talking about superheroes. Yes. But Captain Gravity, you were talking on, on uh, you know, race issues somewhat. I know you didn't have as much editorial you know, or, or authorial control over that as, as you may have now. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, to be quite frank, other than the fact that I didn't create the source material, we, I was given relatively free reign. So, so if I, you know, so if, if we handled the racial issues in Captain Gravity a little bit more softly than my later work, it's because I felt like the material is, is uh, I'm, I'm, my, my later work submerges the pulp. It's definitely built on a pulp mm-hmm. structure. Everything I've done is is built on pulp, but it's the deep under. It's you know the substrate of the material. Whereas in Captain Gravity, I felt it was necessary that yeah, it be the scaffolding that. all around yeah. it. You know, so I think that's why we went a little bit softer on the messaging. So there's always a very human element. I guess mm-hmm. is what do I get? You know, you never forget that the that there are real problems facing real people. Yeah. And it kind of works its way into the more fantastic. Even to some extent, you know, the demon. Which I think they... Driven DC out. just... They, they reprinted... They just reprinted blew it. blew my mind. I got I, a box out of the blue of comps. I've got to buy that because I, I know I have the individual issues, but it's been so long as I read it. That is such a batshit crazy... Like, I'm so proud of that, and it, I'm not even sure it makes any sense. No. I, I think that if you read it, you don't even know what's happening. And you know what else? I... I, I, I yeah, there's a quote you gave me off the record, and I won't put it on the record here. <laughs> but, that, but that, no, I'm not going to put it on the interview, <laughs> but I'll tell you afterwards, that has stuck with me since. And it's like, when I think of you, I always, it's like, you know how, like, two or three lines that people say will kind of uh-huh. go around when you go, oh, yeah, Josh. And, um, and that line, and you just saying this always gives it. So, I'm dying to know what yeah, Well, you know, hey, listeners, you can email me, and maybe I'll tell you <laughs> if Josh says I can after I tell him what it is. But, you know, so there's this. Element. Good Night Paradise, no superhero. Yeah. Not real. I mean, you know, I kind of was like going back and forth of like, is there a mystical element? Maybe, but that's maybe just me because I like to read that into things. Mm. But there's a surrealism. Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. Yeah. What what drew you? Um, because of a multitude of issues. Like I, I yes. told you, I. On the last podcast, I said The Immortal Hulk was the best book of the year. And then I read Goodnight Paradise, uh-huh. like on December 29th, and went, crap, no. Yes. This is the best book of the year. But it just squeaked in because it was, you know, beginning of December, and I couldn't get a, uh, the full copy until the, the last week of the, of the year. I read it and went, okay, there's so many things that, you you know, you and I could talk about for, for days. And I'll yeah. try to still get it down to 10, 15 minutes. And, <laughs> <laughs> oh, damn, too late. Anyway, <laughs> but what... What made you want to frame it as a murder mystery to talk about, obviously, these very crucial and immediate issues to where you lived and where we all live right now? Yes, yes. Yeah, it's, it's like happening in every American community right now. Um, I, uh, so why, why frame it as a murder mystery? Because, I f- because, first of all, I've been playing with this, this technique, and I hope I hope I haven't done it so much that it's become mechanical. I hope it remains organic. But I've been playing with this technique where you take um, a trope construct, like a murder mystery or a trope-filled construct, and then 
you skin it very heavily with sort of like social realism, mm-hmm. uh, what in England in the 60s uh, was called like the kitchen sink movement, this idea, you know, like skinning it with the fact that you can, you can read this if you're a fan of crime stories or if you're a fan of murder mysteries uh, or like a hard-boiled detective stuff, you, you can be attracted to this, but then you can walk away <clears throat> with, uh, you know, with having like experience, like, uh, like felt something that I, that I wanted to talk about in society that I was observing and I don't know really how else to tell stories. Um, so I thought a murder mystery was perfect for this because it's about the death of community. Uh, in this sort of new push towards consumerist corporatism and um, and how tech industries, the promise of, of the democratization of tech has really turned into the curse of technology that's like a complete, a, almost a, a perfect engine for, for destroying community. And, uh, you know, I, w- I saw that happen in my little beach community, and then I would travel, and then I would travel to other places and see it happen. New Orleans, San Francisco, uh, um, even and then even smaller towns. You know where I'm from, Corpus Christi, Texas. To a certain degree, I'd see a certain kind of gentrification happening with foreign money, and not necessarily with tech money. So, much. but I'm seeing. I I was I was on a business trip to Austin yes. in February. And I hadn't been in Austin in 20 years. Yeah. And I went, there's still little pieces of the Austin island that keep Austin weird. Yes. You know, but, but it's... they're like shrinking pools. I agree. I have a daughter who lives in Austin, so I spend a lot of time there. And yes, Austin has changed drastically because of tech money. Because And these things, you know, and we just don't talk about how much that disrupts community. But in the, the last few years of my time in Venice Beach, I watched... Our voter base shrink because of temporary rentals. Uh, Venice Beach now is a two-mile-by-two-mile two community. And uh, by the time I left, there were over 2,000 illegal Airbnbs operating in Venice Beach in a two-mile-by-two-mile two radius. So what that does is that completely drops your voter base. It can it drops your um, – like the taxes that – get dedicated to schools become affected. You know, the whole community sort of lurches under the weight of this new economy. And, um, and ultimately what happens is the disenfranchised become more disenfranchised and, uh, you know, and people with resources acquire more resources. And, that, and, and, yeah. and that's and a kind of murder. So it's I, a murder mystery. A, <laughs> no, that's, and that's no, I mean, it's no yeah. mystery to see why. So when, you know, when did you, First, see that turning point. Well, to be honest, um, I mean, because if you were thinking about this ten years ago, yeah, exactly. Um, to uh, you know, I mean, to put all the cards on the table and be completely frank, when I moved in to Venice Beach in two thousand and one, um, shortly after nine eleven, at the end of two thousand and one, I was part of a. You know, I was part of a move, a, a move of people who were coming to the community, changing its color and <clears throat> and its uh, its its economic diversity. So, in a way, this and I hope the book is honest about this. It's angry about it, but I I hope it's also honest about it. A kind of gentrification or a kind of cultural change is always happening. Like you can't fight change. You can't you mm-hmm. know. 
communities rise and fall, and it's it's sort of a, you know, in a way I'm sort of screaming at the universe to stop its like engine of change. Well, you made a really good point in there, and I'm hoping people will have all, some will have already read it, some will pick it up because of this interview. But you, there was a, a black woman when there's the protest about the housing development mm-hmm. coming in, and she says, "I sold out, but but look at." Like what I get from yeah. it. Two and generations like, from now, my children will be going, still going to college off this money. Is basically yeah. yeah. So I mean, there is a positive if you want to look at it that way. Yeah. To, for some people. Yeah, and, and that, you know, that makes their lives better. Yeah, that was an honest thing, you know, in uh, that particular sequence too, because the thing with Venice Beach is, and we mention it in the comic. Before it was Silicon Beach, which is what it currently is is known as, which was a marketing moniker mm-hmm. created by real estate agents. Then it was Dogtown, which was a genuine like title that it gave itself because it was so gritty and so hard in the seventies and the eighties. Big skateboarding, yeah, Lords of Dogtown. That's right, Lords. That, yeah. yeah, skateboarding, surf, surf culture originated from there, and it was a bit of a hard edged movement. And then, but if you go really back to the beginning, it's it's called Ghost Town. And the reason why it's called Ghost Town is because to build all of this, Abbott Kinney, the, the, the person who purchased the land and made Venice Beach what it is, Abbott Kinney brought in black workers off the railroads. So these were, these were black uh, employees who were, who were working on trains coming from the American South all the way to the coast. And he would pull them off the trains, and he would say, I will give you a home on the beach, uh, and I'll help support your family if you help dredge all these canals for me, which was the original intention of Venice, was Mm -hmm. to be Venice, Italy in America, was his tourist destination idea. In doing so, he created a community um, in Venice Beach that was one of the very first all-black communities um, that lived near a coast in the western part of the United States. Um, and because of this, this was a relative safe haven, but it caused... There wasn't a lot of people living there at the time, but the few that were there fled. It caused a white flight. Uh, and, um, and, and so it was called Ghost Town, which was a, sort of a racial, mm-hmm. you know, spook, you know, yeah. all that horrible stuff. Uh, a racial thing that got tagged on it by the white citizens of Los Angeles at that time as kind of a no-man's land. Uh, and at the same time, three miles up the coast, I mean, um, inland, Sautel, the Sautel community is the Japanese community. So this kind of weird part of the coast is becoming where ethnicities can thrive, where they can't in white America. And so to see that now all being torn down, all those homes being turned into McMansions, those homes are in terrible shape. There are well, there's many homes in Venice Beach that are well over 100 years old that were pieces of shit the day they were built. So 100 years later, they're in awful shape. Yeah, yeah. And 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 I, you can't, you can't say that it's wrong to tear these homes down, but I, but you also can't say that it's right. And so yes. you know what I mean. So it's a very complicated issue. And so when that woman in the book comes forward and she discusses the history of Ghost Town and the labor that built Venice Beach and the reward that they got in exchange, which was a, a stable for a long time, and then it descended into one of the longest prolonged gang wars in the United States, uh, but was a stable black community for a long time. And, um, you know, so when she comes forward and says, it's time to cash out and get the American dream, 
I hope you see that as good for her, but also, like, that's hard. Why do you have to do that? Right, to be right, right. No, I mean, do you feel like John the Baptist, you're out in the desert, just screaming? Yeah, <laughs> yeah <know>? exactly. <laughs> it's just like, and, and there are no good answers. So I'm, gonna, yeah. I, I'm just going to put you on the spot anyway. I love it. So, you know, uh, all the social issues. I mean, that's one, and thank you for diving in. Um, you've got Eddie who was originally the title character, mm-hmm. uh, struggling with mental illness, mm-hmm. among other things. You know, you've got... Uh, B.F. Bob at least has a camper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, B.F. Bob has a certain amount of personal agency that Eddie doesn't Yeah, get. you got tent cities and shelters shown in the book. So you're, you're addressing, you're illustrating what's... I don't want to call them solutions because they don't feel like solutions. Yeah, they, I, don't, you know, I don't have I don't know. Yeah. Um, so compassion it. and empathy are key, obviously, you know, as we read this and go like, uh, I, you know, what do you do? So here we are streaming in the desert, all right? What do you see as a practical step towards helping people in these situations? Mm-hmm. You know, so somebody listening here would say, what is one practical thing that somebody could do to help address this issue? Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> before I not launch, solve it, I'm not saying solve it because I certainly don't know how to solve it. Um, but before we launch into this, I do want to remind all the listeners this is a murder mystery and it's super fun to read. Okay, <laughs> no, it, it is, <laughs> and, and, and I'll say this, it, you know, it, it, before we get all up in Sinclair, yes, that um, yes. that what I loved about the way TKO Studios promoted this by giving the first issue, yes, I just saw this as when I just read the first issue online. Oh, what an interesting idea for a detective. Yes. A protagonist. And you did not break my heart until two or three issues in where I'm like, oh, crap, you've done it to me again, Dice Art. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was looking for something a little, oh, you know, there's an emotional hook. And then it became, oh, my God, now you're talking about all these other things instead yeah. of just a murder mystery and so I do you're right let's emphasize yeah. it's it's a, an incredibly well constructed murder mystery and I'll get back Thank to you. that too oh good 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 you know but but let's just get a practical yeah. step instead let's of sitting do. here flailing helplessly that's right so so what what do we do in this situation so I don't know you know I I, I mean I tell you what we do we we as a culture I'm going to make the macro and then maybe I'll try to find some sort of micro answer the macro answer is that we as a culture stop celebrating wealth we start investing in economic diversity we place value on um human suffering in our society and we, we oh, I, I think there's plenty of value in human suffering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we place. I'm sorry, yeah, you're right. That you're right. That was a misspeak. We place value on on human dignity. There we go. That's, that's it. it. That's what we're going for. Social justice. Oh, that's the right. Social Justice Warrior podcast. That's exactly. Take right. that, Comics Gates. Okay, that's right. Exactly. I'm and gonna you know, make their list this year. <laughs> and that would be amazing. I know. But quick aside, for entertainment's sake, I know that Pornsack's book, um, Infidel. Was called by, you know, he who shall remain nameless, one of the comic book dudes, uh, comic skate dudes, was called the most SJW comic book ever made. And I know that he was flirting with the idea of putting that quote on the actual book as a selling Please, point. Please, I would, you know. I argued for him to do it. He didn't do it. For some reason, he felt like it wasn't appropriate, but I thought it would have been brilliant. Um, anyway, so that's what we do. You know, we stop there. Something has happened since the 70s. I know that it is amazing that we have 
uh, like trans Twitter and LGBTQ Twitter, and, and, and that we can all now like democratize these social engines and and strengthen disenfranchised movements so that people who have not had the same equity in our society can be lifted up. I do see that happening, and I don't mean to take away from that. However, since the 1970s, when there was a lot of social ills, um, uh, we have seen an almost annihilation of the middle class, a widening gap between those who have all the resources and those who have none of the resources, and an almost disregard for social realism in our art. And uh, in social realism in your art is, is a type of empathy engine. And celebrating the acquisition of wealth is a, is a way to, to insulate yourself against the suffering of those who have less than you. And the third element, the death of the middle class, is literally the elimination of the American dream. So, or, or how, I, how I define it, at the very least. And so these are three things that have happened as we've moved into this new era of corporatism and consumerism, and we have placed a larger value on what your net worth is, uh, on, on the GDP index of our nation instead of the happiness index of our people. And that is the ultimate answer. Now, how do you change that through policy? I have no fucking idea. I don't know. I just know that we have to become a more compassionate people. And we have to... Um, and if someone has less than us, we need to abdicate some of what we have to give to them. And you, I don't know, and, and if you were attacking me, you would call that a, a socialist uh, position or a Marxist position or whatever. But it's, it's not. It's human dignity. It's not politics. It's, it's humanism. So that's what we have to do. And we have to care when the mentally ill are... Uh, are on our streets and we have to care when we have the highest opioid you know epidemic in the nation's history we have to care and that's the only thing that will change it because there's no political policy there's no economic positioning that you can take you can't legislate morality and all the well yeah there's an interesting discussion to be had on that too yeah I mean I could be, be totally be, wrong by the no, way no 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 about I'm legislating morality dude. but I get into that argument with with more conservative friends, shall I just say? Yeah. Not to, I know I'm going to pick and choose when I aggravate people. Yes, uh, and the, look, and the left falls into that trap too. Like, oh yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So when you say that, like you know, I, I think it's interesting, and I and I want to focus. It's like I see headlines about the opioid crisis. Our current, the current president, has made bold, broad statements yes. about the opioid epidemic. One could argue that's one of the ways he won. Was that in the Rust Belt? You got like a white. Uh, impoverished, opioid-stricken community, which you know. But I, I, what I would yeah. say is, it's easy to say those things. Their yeah, statements, course. and I and I want to focus on the care. Yes, that's what it is. Is it's all very well and good for us to clutch our pearls. Yes, and make neat headlines. Do we care? Yes, and so I and I think your work challenges us to care. And if you read, nice. I'm sorry, people, if you're going to read Goodnight Paradise, and you should, you will care. Because you also mentioned like the social media, and one of the things that struck me reading it too was how much like these tools of communication are so crucial at all levels for eddies who still maintain some sort of contact struck, strikes deep to my heart, you know with his son mm-hmm. with his yes. adult son, he has to go to the library. There's a little thing you don't even call that out, but if a library's funding gets cut, that's right. this last connection to 
his better life, yes. if you will, would be gone. Yes, that's right. And even all these homeless teens still have their cell phones, which yes. becomes very crucial to the to the murder mystery. Yes, that's right. In the re- in, exactly. I'm so glad you mentioned that. No one else has mentioned that. And the whole uh, and these cell phones are for the most part uh, for these runaways and houseless people <clears throat> in the homeless culture. Uh, a lot of these are given to them by the government. There's one line we say, and I know it sounds really random, and I've had some people be like, is that for real? Where he, where when Eddie is given a cell phone, it's called an Obama phone. And yes, that is for real. That's a, that's a, a government federal program that was put into place so, during the Obama years so that they could flood the homeless populations with cell phones because cell phones are survival tools. That's how you can get a bead on services. That's how you know where, where to move if you're, if you're on the move and you need to go somewhere where services can be available to you. That's how you, you can get medication. That's how you can stay in touch with a psych uh, doctor mm-hmm. or, a, you know, or, or a medical doctor, uh, a physical medical doctor. So, um, it's, it, it, that's exactly right. It's like little tiny things like that, you know, and, and like you said, like cutting the library, uh, funding, um, yeah, everyone talks about now, this is exactly what I mean by care too. Like everyone's like, oh, the library's just where homeless people hang out. I don't want to go there. Fuck you, man. Homeless people have to hang out somewhere. Our society <laughs> is more and more giving them no place to sleep, no place to sit. No, they live outside for the most part, and if, unless and, they're and lucky enough to have a car, and at the very least, or you know, a tent, have them hang out in a place where there's they, books. They have an option yes. of bettering themselves. That's exactly right, and you know, and in the in, in you know, in, in access to the internet, like we take for granted, because uh, those of us who are old enough to remember a time before the internet, we take for granted how what a survival mechanism and a cultural propellant the internet is. And uh, so, and if you don't give everyone access to it, then you're an unfair, unequitable society. I walked into I into the Sunnyvale Public Library for the first time in 30 years last year because everything is yes. on my phone. Yes, yes, yes. And everything's on my computer, and it was so reassuring. Yes. To discover, hey, the science fiction section is exactly where I remember it when I was 12, oh, taking the bus yes, to it. You exactly. Know? But still different. And, you know, and, and for us, that's a touchstone. But, but, yeah, for us, the light, well, I see you have a library book for research. But it's become, you know, I mean, really. I having, mean, my wife checks out like 12 books out of the library a week. So. <laughs> yeah, but I mean. The, but the, we're the, older, you know, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, that's true, too. I don't know what, where my kids do. So, yeah, I mean, that's the. I think we were addressing the question. It's like there's so much. We just pick a thread and start pulling. Yeah, and, and I think people people need to do that. So, and I think that you know this is an interesting thing. Really quickly, I'm sorry to derail you. No, it's not a derail. Okay, it's cool. a great conversation. Okay, uh, is that um, you know my work has a density about it, and sometimes I I fear if I look over the bulk of my work that there are times when the density is. Isn't servicing the the medium or the form of comics best? And there's other times when I got it better, when I figured it out, I got it right. But the reason why, but it's a good intention density, and it's because I really want us to have a conversation about things, and I want to make entertaining art out of it so that you're excited to have that conversation, so that you don't feel like, oh, this is so preachy or so, you know, didactic or whatever. I use that word all the time because I'm so afraid of being no, didactic. I, no, it's like I said, you f- you fooled me. And I don't mean yeah. that as a negative thing. It's like I read that and went, oh, you've set this in 
a milieu that I would not have yes. expected. Right. And then when I read the trade, it was the, the I guess you still call it a trade, you know, yeah, in the graphic it, novel. Yeah. One, one said, and it's like, you've already entertained me, and it was, you lured me into thinking, which I read... You know, usually you do. Yes. So, <laughs> yes. I appreciate that. So, you know, but you, you have just transitioned nicely to what I would ask next is, you know, the reality is a graphic novel, comics, however you want to call it, I still call them comics, does does have a, a, a limited audience comparatively. No matter how much I'm screaming mm-hmm. in a podcast or writing my blog or even the biggest ones, comic book resources, whatever, there's still a very limited amount of people uh, you know, LA Times and, you know, they, they do comic book focus and most of it still is superhero. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's taken over the culture to some extent. So it's a limited audience compared to film or television. So it's getting hard. And even those, I, I could talk about that off, off line is, you know, getting harder to hit a wide audience. Mm-hmm. You know, we become very splintered as a culture too with our attention and our focus. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't your goal. I, you work in comics because you love comics, yeah. but would you be open to a film adaptation of Goodnight Paradise? More so with Goodnight Paradise than pretty much anything else I've done because I, I I have always I spent my career and I know I've been criticized uh, and rightfully so for not making comics enough like comics and not you know enough like there's like <laughs> I snorted I got it's excited. all right it's all right uh, and I and I totally understand that criticism and I love. I love a Jeff Darrow comic that's literally just about a monk killing zombies for 22 pages. I love that shit. Is that Shal- Shalom? Yeah, Shalom, yeah. yeah. We were just uh, talking about that at the comic shop, at, at Anna's shop. Dude, like, I love that book. Yeah. I'm always accidentally buying the same issue of that book and having like three or four of the same issue lying around because they all look alike. But I, I adore it and, I, and I'm, I'm not opposed to that. I'm just... Uh, I just, I just also think another thing. Or Shaolin Cowboy. Shaolin Cowboy. I, I don't want to say, where's that Shaolin Monk book? Yeah, no, Shaolin yeah. Cowboy, great book. Uh, but I also think that comics can do this kind of thing that maybe European comics do a little bit more. Which they're, I also think they can be dense and they can be like a really interesting way to tell tell a story. Now, in the past, I've never really done anything that I thought was particularly easily transferable to the big screen. Uh, or the, the small screen. I think Unknown Soldier is virtually impossible to make as anything other than a comic. It's almost too horrible. If you add motion and sound, and you have the same thing happen in that book that happened on the screen, you're gonna. You, you, it's almost unethical <laughs> or immoral. I think this is the epitaph for your career. Almost too horrible. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> almost, exactly. almost, just right there on the line. Uh, and you know, in a Violent Messiah is an extremely difficult thing to to. To do, you know, uh, the, our Swamp Thing runs, BPR, you know, Mike Mignola stuff is very hard to translate to the screen, as we can see, and I, I very much mo- tried to model my storytelling on mics. Uh, and this book also, but at the same time, I do feel like I, I want this issue to get the wider audience. I want us to create media that humanizes... Um, the populations that are traditionally dehumanized by media. And so um, I, I do think this book is one of the more easily translatable ones, even though Alberto and I worked very hard to make sure it was a comic book first and not a movie on paper, which I despise. And, um, and so, uh, but yes, I would love to see Eddie in a, in a format that is more 
digestible by the public, you know, for lack of a better term. A better world would be that um, that graphic novels are just as important as movies and TV. I would prefer that, but since that's not the world... Well, you know, I mean, this really, novels aren't. Yes, exactly. Um, in, in the way, you know, this is the One medium. could argue graphic novels are now more important than novels. So, you know. I, I, I think there's a strong argument to be yeah. made there. And I went in when Stan Lee passed away, one, I can't remember who had posted that, like, the statement was, the question to Stan was, aren't you worried that your life's work is being supplanted mm-hmm. by those movies and TV? And he said, everything is replaced. Yeah. By the new thing. It's so true. this is just the way it is. It's true. Um, to some extent. So, um, you know, I'm going to flip... Someday the holodeck will be like, nobody, you know, nobody watches TV because everybody's on the holodeck. holodeck. Yeah. <laughs> it's not happening as quickly as I thought it was going to, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. it, it, yeah, uh, so that's, that's a, that's a really good one too. And, and I, you know, I'm going to go, I, I accidentally skipped over one because I don't want to give short shrift to both Alberto, and, uh, yeah. Alberto Ponticelli and Giulio Brusco. Yes. The artwork is so key in this. So I'm going to yes. go back to the glad-handing, let's just talk about the art of it, yes. uh, the promotional, because Please. you worked with Alberto on uh, Unknown Soldier and with Julia. So, you know, this is, it's so vital. Was there guidance in your script about the shifting in artistic styles? And I'm not even sure where Alberto ends and Julia mm-hmm. begins with the coloring and the, and the different... When, whether you're in Eddie's present, yes. in a flashback, in a hallucination. Yeah. Uh, uh, the only guidance in the scripts are what is past and what is present, and then what is extreme past. So there's actually three art styles. Mm-hmm. Um, so we sort of knew we needed to... Something had to happen that very quietly told... Because uh, one thing I didn't want to do was have a whole lot of caption boxes in this. I'm, I'm a, a writer. I think a lot about words. And some of my past work has been you know, reliant on caption work a lot. And I like it. I don't mind it at all. I think it's, I think it's incredibly literate of comics to do this. I like that comics are both words and pictures. I'm not trying to... Uh, I'm, I'm not... But in this time, for some reason, I don't know why, I just felt it was important not to caption a lot. And I didn't want any... One thing I, I abused the fuck out of is, like, location captions. And I didn't want to do any location captions for this because I wanted this kind of social realism. And, and to me, location captions speak to pulp for some reason. I don't know why, like spy stories or something. Washington, D.C., January. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, I didn't want any of that, so it had to be the art that did it. And it speaks to Eddie's state of mind. Yes, exactly. He doesn't know what... That's where he right. is from time to time. That's right. And sometimes, and if you, I, 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 one of the things I feel confident about that we achieved is, uh, once we established this notion that the past is sometimes being told to Eddie, very soon we start removing Eddie from the equation and suddenly we're feeding the reader information that's not being told to them by anyone, except that they are now an omniscient, omniscient mm-hmm. narrative. So, so there are a lot of flashbacks that occur um, in ways that are not that are surreal, that are not um, tied to a reality inside of the narrative. There's no reason why the reader should be getting this information, except that they are. And, and I also would, I'll take it to that mystic level, is I do think that in some, and I'll, I'll probably read it again and again, to, to confirm my belief, is that at some level, Eddie's getting that too. 
Yes. But in a but not in a way that Eddie understands in any way, shape, or form, nor does it make sense that he would. That's right. And yet he I is. think that's really interesting because that's exactly sort of our take on it is like and, and Eddie makes mistakes too. He like draws conclusions that don't necessarily tie right. up. And um so he, he it's not that he is uh but he but there is an almost preternatural thing happening, right, where he does manage to follow the mystery. He doesn't know how, he doesn't know why, he's not yeah. always clued into what's going on, and he and there's a strong part of him that's trying to walk in the other direction from the mystery, but his feet just keep moving him towards the mystery. And I feel really good about the way that we handled that. And one of the reasons why it was so important to make sure that these flashbacks weren't completely tied to narrative in 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 book narrative dynamics or in world narrative dynamics was because tradition man once I, I started to really tear apart um, detective fiction to work on this and I started going back and rereading all the old stuff I'd read as a kid and the Chandler and the, like and I started tearing apart I was like holy fuck it's mostly just people talking <laughs> which is the worst kind of comic books ever <laughs> and that was something I was like oh my god and I remember even talking to Z and Pornsack and Sebastian the editor and being like. Dude, I never realized, uh, like, the third man, uh, the thin man is essentially just dialogue. There's, like, very, very little descriptions because it's all people talking, and so much of it is people retelling things that happened while the reader... Well, and, and that's why it stands as a film series, too, is yes. because it's just that the banter is what oh, yeah, people remember. You have to have those actors being, like, super charismatic and fun to watch, um, so... Once I began to realize how reliant the detective novel is on the form of a novel and how kind of if you took it, if you just transposed it into comics, how shitty it would be as a comic book. That is when I was like, oh, we have to come up with new, interesting narrative devices to do the same thing the detective novel does, which tells you later what happens. Yeah. yeah, the readers never present for the are very rarely present for the action in a detective novel. They almost are always told about the action After, afterwards yeah. until until the culmination when there maybe is a gunshot or something. So, uh, so that's when we begin. That's when I began to think about this whole like, why are we tying our narrative to time so much and to people speaking so much? And that's when I think I found a, we found a language. Uh, that was unique to comics, which was changing art styles so mm -hmm. that the reader subtly understood. And so there's three styles. There's the present style, which is Alberto doing extreme shading and modeling, and then Julia coloring on top of that and having to be very careful because Alberto's pencils on in that style are dropping the value into the darks. And so Julia has to be really careful when she colors on top of that. Uh, not to overmodel, not to darken her colors too much, even though that those parts of the book are a dingy dark. That's mm -hmm. the most dingy dark style. So that's a really beautiful piece of work that they did, and they, we all sort of, but it's mostly Alberto and Julia. I don't mean they they sort of worked together for a bit to find that look. That was the I think the most difficult look to pin down. The second one is the immediate past, the mystery, the murder, what mm -hmm. everyone did and who they're at. And for that, Alberto created a more open line, less shading, and then Julia could do her, you know, could do her thing more mm -hmm. there. She didn't have to pull back. She could give it her all. And that's, I think, looks beautiful and is cartoony the way that, because, because for us, the most, 
realistic style, uh, though it's still very stylistic, is the present because that's where we are now. The past is a memory, and memories are false. So there's a more open, clean look mm-hmm, to them. Mm-hmm. There's a more cartoony thing. And then the further in the past we go, and we only get this style, I think, on maybe four pages or something, is when they're all back at home before the three primary kids, homeless uh, runaway kids, before they leave home and we see their home life. And that's an extremely cartoony style with a very flat cartoony coloring on top of it. And the only time we revisit that style is when we find out that there was a... Rem- oh, I won't, that's a spoiler. It's later. And, um, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And so, and, and so the further in the past you go, the more cartoony and like colorful... And, and because that's the way memory is, because we have such a transitory uh, relationship with memory. So that's that's yeah. how those styles came into, yeah. and that's how Julia and Alberto did it. And that that's it is beautiful. Awesome. So you know, obviously, we've talked a lot about a chunk of things that concern you. I'm going to end with this question. Awesome. What gives you hope? Oh man, I have a lot of hope. I mean, I think that uh, I know it doesn't seem like it. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I think. Well, first of all, I think that uh, I'm a happy, hopeful person, and um, but that might be because I exercise my demons into my work, so that when the so that what the world sees is like a dark, sort of angry, like "fuck you," like "care," you know, "don't be an asshole" um, kind of body of work. Uh, I mean, we can say that nicely. Yeah. Don't be an asshole. Don't be an asshole. Honest, that's simple. Yeah, it's, yeah exactly. <laughs> but I am a very hopeful person. I will say these last two years have um, a combination of the current political climate in the United States and um, my last trip to uh, for the United Nations World Food Program to South Sudan have created um, a little bit of a dark spot on my soul and I'm, I'm trying to deal with it and process it but um, what gives me hope is that we have again and again on an individual level I see amazing acts of human kindness of thoughtful creativity of exp- you know human expression and I think that's ex- I think that's extraordinary and beautiful what I don't understand and what I'm afraid of is when humans get together in large groups, whether that's a, a virtual group or a proximal space group, um, and then they go crazy and they do horrible things. And um, so I, I, I think there is a poetry in our darkness and in our light. I think that truth is only derived from contradictive elements you know to quote Metallica energy derives from both the plus and negative I think um, we're only being honest when we have two opposing ideas and we're able to look at them together and build a bridge between them that's the only time truth emerges and all of that has a there is a poetic beauty about that and uh, and I like that I like our place in the universe as mind I like all these things. I think we're extraordinary, but, you know, we just do horrible things to each other. <laughs> so, my, so yes, I, I'm, I'm hopeful. You know, look, we're the only animal that we know of that, uh, that 
can analyze its own nature and change. And we have changed. You know, like dogs aren't like, you know what? I spend too much time on this chew toy. Yeah. I, I'm going to put, I'm going to, I'm going to spend less time on the chew toy. I'm going to work on my novel. Like yeah. dogs never do that. You know, Ralph, I just need to run in the park a little more and <laughs> yeah. a little less on the chew. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dogs don't do that. They don't alter their behavior. They don't, they don't analyze their nature. We do. And that could be our saving grace. We just have to value that aspect of humanity. It's like, is struggle for change. And, and unfortunately, there is an element in the human animal that is traditionalist or afraid of change and that wants to like lock down onto the way either things are now or the way things used to be. And the way things used to be is a myth. And the way things are now is shit. So I don't know why we have this inside of us. I don't know why we fear change. It's probably attached to fear of death or whatever. I don't really know. But I know that that's holding us back. Um, and I, I, yeah. And so, so that's, so that's why I have a very conflicted viewpoint of humanity, but in that conflict is also where I see our beauty. Like that's, that's just, you know, it's extraordinary that we're just this mind in this huge, vast, practically infinite amount of space. Um, and we're so fragile and we're so, uh, incapable of communicating on a, on a large spiritual plane and yet we achieve so much and um, so there's something really pretty about that and beautiful and it's fun to watch and it's it's true that we're in I feel to my mind a little bit of a dark moment but it's just a moment it's just a moment man it's just a moment it's just a and moment. as long as it doesn't wipe us out as a species then okay okay that was hopeful it very well made <laughs> by the way I, I mean I feel I, I know every generation says this, but I see the bottleneck up ahead. I'm like, hmm. We'll get through. Yeah. Uh, We'll see. I hope so. Okay, cool. Well, thank you for taking the time. At this point in our time travel journey... Rick, I hope you enjoyed listening to this. I don't know how many. I'm times, sure I did. I, I I don't know how many times you have to listen when you're producing, but uh, to any interviews. But uh, I hope that was good. So uh, now to the listeners, thank you for listening. And of course, I'll say it one more time, even though I know I know I said it in the recording. Thank you to Josh Dysart. So. Uh, of course, once again, if you have any questions, comments, compliments, commentary, criticism, write in to editor at fanboyplanet.com. I would really like to know um, what you thought of this, and I would also really like to know, hey, any further suggestions? Josh and I talked about things you could do to try to, you know, what are the little steps to make the world a little bit of a better place? So what suggestions do you have? Let's open that up. Uh, it's, it's 2019. What can we do to use our powers for good that maybe we're not thinking of? So, you know, I, I, I am always open to suggestions. And, and, and sharing there. So I'd love to hear from the, from the uh, fan people out there, the fan droids as we used to call them. So thank you. And uh, editor at fanboyplanet.com. Follow us on Facebook. Uh, tweet us. Uh, Insta- tweet at us. Twitter it. Whatever. I'm a twit. Uh, Instagram, what have you. And, of course, if you, want, if you can't find one of the TKO Studios books at your local brick-and-mortar store, by all means, they're all good. Uh, I just Goodnight Paradise so far has been the one that just that just knocked me knocked me flat. So uh, there we go. I got nothing else. I'm Derek McCaw, editor in chief of FanboyPlanet.com, and I'm Rick Brett Snyder reminding you to use your powers for good.
thanks once again to the great Luke Ski for use of his music in this podcast. Visit Luke Ski at www.thegreatlukeski.com.